As countries around the world grapple with how to deal with the coronavirus economic crisis, it seems there's no right or wrong way for governments to manage the financial impact, only trade-offs. The question is, who should ultimately pay for all the money that businesses are getting? Is it the ones who receive help now, paying it back over the next few years out of their revenues? Should all taxpayers in the country pay for it, especially the future generations who will inherit the exploding public debt? For most countries, the answer lies somewhere in between. Where exactly in between should it be is a question not just of economics, but of intergenerational ethics and justice. University of Auckland's Professor Tim Mulgan is a global expert on intergenerational ethics. He joins me now. Good morning to you, Professor. Uh, Good morning. And thank you for your time. This must be a conundrum that you are dealing with right now. Um, Yeah, I think it is. I think it's a, I mean, there are lots of ethical issues to do with with the lockdown. And the intergenerational ethics, the basic idea is that you shouldn't be better or worse off just because of when you were born. So the ideal is we're trying to do what we can to ensure that all New Zealanders have the same life prospects, the same opportunities, the same quality of life, whether we were born in 1950 or 1975 or 2000 or or 2020. So I think the real, the real, inter, the hard intergenerational ethics questions, as you've said, are the ones about how we exit from the from the lockdown yeah. and how we how we pay the price of that. But I think it's worth starting with with why we're in the lockdown because that is itself and an, a good example of intergenerational ethics in action. So I think if we'd done nothing, then there would have been a high cost and that cost would have fallen very disproportionately on on vulnerable people and especially on older New Zealanders. And we've decided that that's not who we are, that we're all in this together and we're all going to make small but not insignificant sacrifices now so that that cost is shared. And I think the important thing is that if we're all in it together now, when we're avoiding coronavirus, mm. then we need to be all in it together uh, when it comes to, comes time to to pay the price. Because there is a worry that a lot of people have that if we do nothing after the lockdown, if we just continue with business as usual, then the price, the economic cost, uh, will fall very disproportionately and very unfairly on on younger New Zealanders. And so the intergenerational challenge, I think, for all of us is to say, how can we prevent that? How can we try and spread the pain that there's going to be um, after the lockdown in the way that we've tried to spread it by going into lockdown in the first place? You know, how can we all make small but not insignificant sacrifices to avoid having a lot of pain for a, a small number of people? I have been surprised at how compliant young people have been, at least initially, I guess. You know, I, they, think, yeah, probably, I think that, hmm. as you say, I think that's really, that's really heartening because you know, you could, they could just say, well, look, if I get it, it's not going to affect me. And I think that is, that is wonderful and it is very heartening and it does show that people are prepared to make sacrifices for for other people, and I think we do need to find ways to 
to reciprocate that. Um, so one, I mean, to make that a bit more concrete, one example that that I've been thinking about that I think a lot of us might be thinking about is how we deal with the fact that a lot of businesses will have fewer jobs yep. and that there will be not as not as many. So some some businesses obviously are going to be devastated by this and maybe a small number will be okay, but most of us will be in, in businesses, whether public or private or small or large or whatever, where there's just less money coming in mm. and there's less money to pay salaries, there are fewer jobs. And the way that we normally deal with that goes something like this. We start by saying we'll have a freeze on new jobs, we'll stop the people who are on casual contracts, we won't renew people on short-term contracts, and we do that to protect the interests of the people who already have jobs. And maybe that's fine if it's one or two businesses doing it now and then, but if if it's the vast majority of businesses in New Zealand and it's across the economy and it's for several years, then the result of that is that there's a generation of New Zealanders for whom there are just just no jobs. And that does seem unfair on those people when when they've you know they've made the sacrifice now. Mm. So I think maybe that, you know, the harder the harder choices are to start not by having a freeze on, on new jobs and not by cutting the casual things, but by saying to people who are nearing retirement age and could afford to retire but would rather not that maybe they should retire sooner than they wanted to. Or mm-hmm. saying to all of us who have permanent full-time jobs that maybe we should all consider taking a 5%, 10%, 20% pay cut or going part-time. And those are often, I mean, usually those are options of last resort and you do them to save the jobs of people who already have jobs. But maybe you know, in this new era, if we really are all in it together, we might need to think of some of those things, not just to save existing jobs, but to create new jobs so that there are some some new jobs. That's a, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. We've been having discussions in this office too with, with radio sport disappearing. You know, some of us have been here for a very long time. All of us are paid very well. You know, those in the, in the front line, in the host position, why couldn't we get together and and basically sponsor a couple of young journalists into the newsroom, you know, by taking a, a percentage cut? Yeah, so I think it's... It's almost I mean, like it's world vision, but you're adopting young employees instead. Yeah, so I think, I mean, our, our workplace is is quite similar. I mean, I mean, obviously there'll be, there'll be people who are different who, differently situated for whom... Mm. Early retirement isn't isn't an option, or you know they might have been in a two income household and now suddenly they're in a one income household and and so on. But but yeah, for a lot of us, I think I think we are in that in that kind of situation. And we would, I mean, it's a collective action problem. I think like the the lockdown, it doesn't do much good if one or two people 
self-isolate or lock themselves down. We need to do this. Enough of us would need to do this for, for there to be enough new jobs to make a difference. Exactly. And I was thinking there'd need to be that same sort of, because while this has all been very good and positive, I think, in terms of being compliant and understanding that this is for the greater good, um, there's also been a little bit of finger pointing and shaming and policing and from a few, you know, very interested sticky beaks. So there would need to be the same sort of level carrot and stick on all business to accommodate young people and to welcome them in, wouldn't there? You couldn't just depend on individual businesses, as you say, doing the right thing. You'd have to have a kind of collective understanding that this is the way we're going to operate. I think so, yeah. And I think, and maybe the, the lead for that needs to come, you know, from the government with, as you say, in either incentives or, or possibly penalties. Because I think, you know, in the lockdown has worked because somebody centrally has said this is all what we're all going to do. Yeah. Um, but it has also worked because everybody's, or almost everybody has voluntarily complied with it. Mm. And I think, you know, it's also been true that the, I mean, we are all sacrificing something, but at the moment some of us are better off than others. Mm. And some of us, I mean, those of us who are fortunate enough to be able to, who are non-essential but we're able to work from home, and we've got money coming in and so on. I think it's, you know, it is kind of incumbent on us if, if at the end of it we're better off. Yeah. Comparatively, then, then maybe we do need to think that that we should pay more of a price later. Because if you don't, and I was thinking this earlier as well, if you don't on a, on a kind of Western world kind of a way, you just watch those euthanasia bills go through. Um, yeah, I think, you know, and, and those of us who are, those of us who are kind of not, who are in between the millennials and the, and the baby boomers, um, you know, so at the moment I'm, I'm 50 and I'm in reasonably good health, except that I have a, I have mild asthma, but, you know, I would be, I wouldn't enjoy getting this thing, but it almost certainly wouldn't kill me. Same. But if there's another pandemic in 30 years, then people my age are going to be among the most vulnerable. And at that point, we do want younger people, the people who are now younger, to rally round and say, you know, we're all in this together. And I think there is a danger if we let them get left behind that they just won't, they won't do it again. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Tim Mulgan, Global Expert on Intergenerational Ethics, Department of Philosophy, University of Auckland. Pretty much what I was thinking too. If we are all in this together, then we have to be in this together on the way out. And the young people have to be acknowledged for being willing to be compliant, being willing to forego their own liberties to protect you know, a sector of the population, although left unchecked the way it's going in Britain, although the stats overwhelmingly show um, older people who are dying, it's getting younger and younger, and, and certainly children and young adults, those in their 30s as well, are not immune from it.